Perfect. All right, we are in chapter 2, inductive Bible study. Last week we talked about some of the different gaps uh, in uh, our understanding of Scripture, historical gaps, literary gaps, theological gaps. Uh, We spent some time there. Today we're talking about uh, uh, some step-by-step approaches we take to Scripture. We're going to look at some principles as we study Scripture that are important to keep in mind. And if we have time, we'll get to the end where we talk about induction versus deduction. If not, we'll get to that next week, and it'll tie into the next chapter. But um, here you see in the introduction uh, the idea of hermeneutics. Does anyone know what hermeneutics is? I'll put it up there. That's one way to put it, but yes? Yeah, how, how to interpret Scripture is essentially what that. That's a maybe a big word, a word we're not used to hearing, but simply just means how do we interpret Scripture? And so they define it in the book, the science and art of Bible interpretation. Uh, they say, first, as a science, hermeneutics provides the interpreter of Scripture with sensible principles to guide and direct his or her thinking with regard to interpreting the Bible. We're going to get into those principles today. Second, as an art or skill, hermeneutics provides the interpreter of Scripture with a methodical process that with practice may be applied to the biblical text and result in an accurate understanding of the Bible. They go on to say, The procedure presented in this book is the inductive method, which is a task-oriented, step-by-step process that has been widely accepted in Bible-believing circles as the most popular and most effective approach to the study of Scripture. We must trust that our presentation of the inductive method will be sufficiently thorough while remaining simple and clear so that it will inspire and equip you to a lifetime of fruitful Bible study. So, uh, like I said, at the end of this chapter, it gets a little more into what is inductive uh, Bible study method, how is that different than a deductive approach, but first we're going to get into some of these principles uh, that we need to take into consideration as we come to Scripture as we seek to interpret it, okay? So first of all, you see there the literal principle, okay? The literal principle. Uh, The meaning, as you see there, is to take the words of the Bible at face value. Avoid reading into the text what is not there. They go on to say this means that the Bible interpreter shouldn't allegorize the text or look for hidden meanings, nor should he or she assume that the Bible must be decoded in order to be understood. Okay? This is so important because so many people come to Scripture and they're looking for some secret code. They're looking to just unlock truths that are hidden. No, God's Word's given to communicate to us. And of course, we need to dig deep into God's Word. It's not just going to be, you know, we read it and now we've got all truth. We've got to dig in, but it's different than just seeking to allegorize or to make things say what they're not supposed to say to try to uncover hidden truth. That's not the way we approach Scripture. We look at it at face value. We take it at face value. So, uh, there's some misunderstandings, though, when we talk about the literal principle, okay? Uh, Turn to John chapter 6, and I want to ask a couple questions in regards to this, and in regards to this literal principle, okay? John chapter 6, verses 53 to 54. I want to ask you, how do we interpret the following verses in light of the literal principle, okay? John six fifty three to 54. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do we take that verse literally? Thoughts. Joseph. As an analogy, okay. Absolutely. And, that, and that, I point this one out because we can be so rigidly literal that we're not reading the text the way it's meant to be communicated. Just like when we're having conversation with people, do we use figures of speech? Do we use metaphors? All the time. And most of us, we know, you know, just if, if we were to, let's say today it was really muggy and rainy outside and someone said, what's the weather like? Oh, it's soupy outside. We would all know what they meant. We wouldn't go out there and be like, there's no clam chowder or, you know, tomato soup out here. What are you talking about? We would know exactly what we're trying to communicate. And so the, the same idea is true, that in Scripture, we're going, we're going about it, looking at it literally, but that doesn't mean there's not a use of figures of speech, that there's not a use of metaphors, there's not a, uh, a use of allegory at times even. Okay? But we're looking at Scripture, and part of this is trying to determine what was the authorial intent behind it. What was Jesus trying to communicate here? Not to physically eat his flesh and drink his blood, But just like food, you know, Jesus in this passage says, I am the bread of life. Was Jesus literally a loaf of bread? No, he's saying that just like bread gives life uh, as you eat it, just like we need food, we need to receive him and receive the life he gives through his death, through his shedding of, of his blood and the sacrifice of his body. As we receive that, that's what gives us life, okay? So he's using a metaphor, an analogy to communicate this literal idea. So throughout Scripture, you do see figurative language, um, things that are clearly figures of speech, metaphor, um, hyperbole, anthropomorphisms. Um, they're found thousands of times throughout the Bible. Okay, um, Whenever figures of speech are recognized in the Bible, we should always look for the literal intent behind the non-literal terminology. So even when we see... Uh, this example, like this metaphor in John 6, we're always looking for what was the literal intent behind this use of a metaphor, okay? So we're always looking for what, what is the, this literal principle, what, what, are, what is literally trying to be communicated, okay? I've heard someone, and I can't remember if it was R.C. Sproul, uh, but someone said that when we talk about liter, literal, taking, taking the Bible literally, it actually means according to the literature, Right, according to the literature. So when we're coming to the Psalms and we're reading a poetic book, we're going to notice that there's going to be uses of figures of speech, probably even more so in a poetic book, but we're taking it according to the literature, according to what the author's trying to communicate. Okay? So authorial intent is very important as we seek to go about this literal principle. Okay? The second principle, and we'll spend some time, I put the passage up there. I forgot I had it on there, John six, fifty three to fifty four. But the next one is the contextual principle, okay? And this is, uh, and I think the book expresses this, but in my opinion, this is probably the easiest principle, but it's the least used, if that makes sense, the most uh, neglected. So it's probably the easiest one, easiest principle that all of us can put into, into practice, but it is the most abused. And we're gonna get, I'm going to give some examples, and I might get fired up because... Uh, one thing that probably bugs me more than anything is when Scripture's taken out of context, okay? So you see the meaning, the contextual principle. Always strive to understand the text 
within the confines of its historical, literary, and theological context. So there's different ideas of context when we come to a text. And I've got a couple examples there. First of all, the historical cultural context, okay? The historical cultural context of any given portion of Scripture relates directly to its position as a historical document rooted within the drama of human history. So when we come to a passage, and especially, you know, we're looking at the Old Testament, we've got to understand what is the historical context behind this? You know, what is going on with God's people? We referenced last week Jeremiah 29, 11, and how that's used as just a verse, oh, God's got these plans for you, a future, you're going to succeed, you know, you just graduated. Well, no, we're looking at the context of Jeremiah and what, where do we find, what's the historical background, the context? God's people are in captivity. And they're wondering, has God forgotten all his promises to his people? Has he neglected us? Has he forsaken us? And God says, no, I have plans of a future, of a hope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill my promises. And, of course, there is application to that. But we've got to understand, first of all, the historical, cultural con- context. Um, let me ask this question. How would you differentiate the concepts uh, of the historical context and the cultural context? How are those different? Historical versus cultural context. You know? Yeah, you nailed it. Absolutely. So one is the aspect of there's history involved. And within history, are there various cultures? Think about today. Are there various cultures? Absolutely. So not only do we want to understand the history, we've got to understand the culture of who, who Scripture is written to in that day and age, some of the cultural background as we look to it. So absolutely, we want to understand those two things. There's a little bit of nuance there. Um, they say, uh, because the Bible was written by real human authors in the context of history, most of the Bible is set within the context of historical events. So studying history is a good way to understand more the depths of what God's trying to communicate. Okay, Part of this contextual principle as well and this is the one we'll spend a little bit of time on because this is the easiest one, and again, the most neglected, I think, is the literary context. The literary context. The ideas that precede and follow any given portion of Scripture constitute the context of that unit. So this is just simply saying, Scripture is not just a collection of a bunch of fortune cookie sayings, okay? And that's how... We use it many times. And I'm not, that's not to say that we shouldn't memorize verses of Scripture. It's not to say we can't put a verse of, of Scripture on a coffee cup or a shirt. But we've got to be careful to understand the context of what we're, what we're, what we're putting out there. Okay, And I'll give you some examples here. Like I said, I might get fired up over this. So, um, so they say the first fa- facet of the literary, of liter- literary context has been variously described as surrounding context, grammatical, syntact- syntactical context, or cotext. Simply put, words, phrases, sentences, and even paragraphs may have multiple meanings, and these are most always determined by what precedes and follows. The ideas that precede and follow any given portion of Scripture constitute the context of that unit. Okay? So let me, I'm going to give us three examples, and you see there in your notes these examples. But I want us to consider these examples. I just put them all up there, and we'll go one at a time. So first of all, and I think all I put in your notes were that portion of it, okay, without the context. 
So the one that I've seen lately misabused, taken out of context the most, is that Psalm 46.5. And I put it in the NIV because I, I actually Googled it to find what the reference was because I couldn't remember and found all these shirts and coffee cups and all these things with this verse slapped on it out of context. So that's what the verse says. God is within her. She will not fail. So what do you think, first of all, um, how, how could we interpret those verses in isolation? Don't look at Psalm 46, uh, 4 and 6 and all that yet. But how, if you just saw that verse on a shirt, boom. Some, yes, I am woman, hear me roar, right? That's essentially God's within me. I will not fail, right? I'm not going to fail. God's going to give me success in anything and everything. And that's why that verse is so popular to put on a shirt. We'll turn to Psalm 46, if you haven't already. And let's look at the context. Is this really what the psalmist is trying to communicate? Okay? We'll just pick up at verse 4, because uh, it talks beginning about God being a refuge and a strength. But look at verse 4 of Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She, will not, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. So what is the her in, chapter, in verse 5? The city of God, which in that day is Jerusalem, right? It's not a woman today saying, God is within me, I will not fail. No, he's, it's, the context is the city of God, Jerusalem, right? Do you see how mis, misinterpreted, how twisted this is? But again, this is such an easy principle. Just read, just read the passage in its context and you'll know this isn't some verse to, to put on a shirt and wear. Yeah, they won't buy t-shirts. About, and maybe there are some that buy them because they're like, man, I just love that verse about Jerusalem, but I, I, I very much doubt it, okay? The next one you see there is another one that is very commonly uh, read out of context, okay? And even in, even in our circles, I'll be honest, hear it all the time. But it's, and I could give you so many examples because, like I said, nothing makes me... I would say angry, angry, like in a righteous way, than people just throwing out a verse of Scripture out of context. Um, you know, either, to, either just because that's the way they've heard it or, or for, you know, malicious intent. But Matthew eighteen twenty, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So when we read that verse in isolation, what do we think that verse is, is saying? Or how, do, how have you maybe heard people interpret that verse? Where two or three are gathered together, in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so you're actually getting a little bit more into the context than most people, because I think you're right there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, even if, even if it's just me and another person or me and two other people, uh, we can have a, a meeting, and of course, there's a, a truth to that. That I mean, really, you don't even need two or three as far as the Holy Spirit being present. But we're called to community. We're called to be in a fellowship of believers. Did someone else have something to add, Paul? Right. 
right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So look at the context, Matthew 18. And, uh, of course, Matthew 18, verses 15 uh, down to 20 are what we use generally as principles when we're practicing church discipline. These are uh, truths that Jesus laid out that as we are in a church context and as we see a brother who's in sin, a brother or sister in sin, and we seek to restore them, these are the principles we use in seeking restoration. So look at verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is Old Testament, right? Two or three witnesses you need to establish a charge. It's not just he said, she said, okay? So take two or three with you uh, that every charge may be established. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, wherever you bind, whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, uh, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what, what I believe the context is, is when a church body is seeking to restore someone in sin, and again, Jesus says, first of all, go to that person by yourself. Maybe they don't know they've sinned against you, and you communicate that, restoration is always the goal. Well, they don't hear you, so you take two or three. Make sure you're not in the wrong. Have I misunderstood something? Am I pointing out sin that's not sin? If the two or three of you say, no, that's sin, and we're calling you to repent, and the person still doesn't hear, then it goes to the church, and you say, look, this person's in sin. We've sought to restore them. We've worked with them, and now it's time to put them out of the church um, with still the hopes that they'll return and be restored. You can look at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to see principles there. But what God is saying is where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there am I. So I, I have your back in this. If you're going about this process in the proper way with the goal of restoration and you're seeking to humbly restore a brother and they don't hear you, I got your back basically, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. I've, you've got the support of Scripture and of God backing you in, in making these tough decisions. Putting someone outside of a church is a tough decision this is the context, not just, hey, get two or three people together and you can have a little church service, right? Um, so there, there's one that I, I see all the time taken out of context. The last one there, pretty simple one if you know anything about the context there, but uh, Luke one twenty seven, for nothing will be impossible with God. I heard a pastor one time talking about as a kid reading that verse, for nothing will be impossible with God. And he said, he decided he was going to go out and I think he was only five foot or something at this time. He said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to dunk on my basketball goal, 10-foot goal. Why? Because nothing will be impossible with God. And so he's at the end of the driveway, and he's pumping himself up. Nothing's impossible with God. Nothing's impossible with God. So he runs, he takes off, he jumps, and he face plants right into the pole. And then he, he determines, well, maybe I need to read the context of that verse. And does anyone know the context of Luke 1? Do you know who those words are being spoken to? What happens in Luke 2? Put it that way. Luke 2 is probably the most famous passage that we use about, yes. So Luke 2 is when we go for Christmas. 
Jesus' birth, the most detail there. Luke 1 is, yeah, the angel communicating to Mary that she's with child, even though she's a virgin. And in the context of that, how is this possible that I could have a child and I'm a virgin? Well, with, with God, nothing will be impossible. That's the context. This isn't just a blanket statement. If you, you know, this isn't R. Kelly, if I can see it, then I can do it. I believe I can fly. That's not what Luke one twenty seven is saying, right? It's the context of, in this situation, nothing's impossible with God. We talked about Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. The context is being content. So it's important when we see these verses. God, I mean, I, like I said, God does not is not pleased, I don't think. Just like we wouldn't be pleased if someone took something we said out of context, right? If someone said, well, this person said this, and we were quoting what someone else said, or what not, we would be angry if someone's taking our words and twisting them. And so we need to hold God's words in even higher regard and be careful we're not twisting them or using them to advance what we want. Paul? Is it 37? Okay. Okay. So that is a... Okay. There you go. Yeah. That was a test and you guys passed. No. So Luke one thirty seven. I apologize. I I put in the wrong one. I I can't tell you. I can't tell you how many times um, in master plan of evangelism. Of course, the copy I used was an outdated copy. There were so many times that his references were off, and I'm sure that's why they had to update and do all that. But it was fun sometimes trying to figure out. Like it'd be like Luke thirty three something. I'm like, what did he? mean there and i'd have to go look was it luke 3 was it luke 13 was it luke uh so yeah that we're not beyond putting in the wrong passage thank you for pointing that out luke 137 okay all right uh one other quick note about our joseph you had something oh boy i, I had mentioned last week jeremiah twenty nine eleven is very much just thrown out like God has these plans for us to prosper and to give us a future and a hope, and it's completely out of context. Like I said, Philippians 4.13, all the time, I can do all things through Christ. Like I said, the North Carolina basketball player had it on his shoulder, and I'm sure you know Tim Tebow made it famous with wearing it. And, you know, are there applications to, you know, we can trust Christ for what, what you know. But it, it doesn't necessarily mean, hey, we're going to have victory today. Tim Tebow lost football games and lost his job eventually in the NFL. So it doesn't mean if I set my mind to it, I can do it. So those are a few that come to my mind. Can you think of any others? Oh, yeah, judge not that you be not judged. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most abused outside of the church. People, everybody, even if you're not a believer, misuses that verse. Yeah, judge not that you be not judged when... Scripture clearly teaches elsewhere. Well, if you look at, again, the context, verse 2, he says, with the judgment that you judge, it's going to be judged against you. So what he's saying is don't judge self-righteously. Don't judge with wrong judgment. Scripture throughout, and we're going to talk about this, part of the principle is understanding the whole of Scripture, not just taking a verse in isolation. So, Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, that's a good example. I, that's one I didn't think of, but that's a great example. So when we come to this idea again of the literary, 
context, not only do we want to just understand where this verse fits in the sentence and in the paragraph and, and that, that kind of thing, um, they say the second facet of literary context pertains to the literary genre or sh- subgenre of any given portion of Scripture. So again, this is what is the context of the book as, of, as a whole. Uh, Acts is going to be more historical. Is it a psalm where we're understanding this is poetic? Understanding what's the genre, and then there's even subgenres in a book. There will be times in you know, Exodus where uh, it's a lot of historical things, but then Moses is singing, so it's very poetic in certain parts. So you have to understand what's the genre and subgenre as we understand the context. Let's keep moving because we've got to get going. We're only on the second one, but I knew we'd spend a little time on this. Also, part of the contextual principle is the theological canonical context. Theological canonical context. Theological context tends to emphasize the covenant relationship that God has with his people and the representation of that relationship in the progression of salvation history. So, as we're coming to it, we want to understand the context of how is God operating. He's going to operate, you know, we, we here believe in dispensationalism, which means that God operates in different ways. It's always through faith that we have that uh, right relationship with God, but it's faith in what he's communicated, what his promises are. So there's various covenants, Mosaic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant. We want to understand how is God operating in that time frame, right? There's a certain certain dispensation just means there's a certain stewardship right um he's not going to hold people to the same standard in the old testament as the new because there's not been as much he's not revealed as much he's holding them to what what they know what the, what has been revealed to them An example well israelites under the mosaic covenant are going to have different commandments and expectations than christians under the new covenant so even as we read the book of leviticus we're going to understand this was the context of his chosen people and that his history and culture and we're not going to just say everything God commands here is directly applicable here. Now, it doesn't mean we just brush it aside either, right? Um, but we, we want to understand the context of how God is communicating, how God's working. Um, I don't know if I have... So I didn't put in here, but... Uh, so that's the theological context. I didn't put in here the canonical context. But that concerns not just the place in the timetable of Revelation in which a biblical writer lived or wrote, but also the way in which individual books of the Bible function together to form one comprehensive book. We must consider the context of a book of Scripture within the entire scope of God's revelation. That is, its canonical context. So we touched on this. We understand the the smaller in light of the whole, right? We want to understand the whole frame of Scripture. What is God doing? That helps us to understand more specific passages, okay? And I should have put that, that uh, explanation in the notes, but I did not. The third one, and these will go a little quicker here as we're wrapping up, the one meaning principle, okay? Very straightforward. There will normally be one correct interpretation of a text, although there may be multiple applications. So this is, uh, don't come to a Bible study group and say, what does this verse mean to you? Oh, it means this. And what does this verse mean to you? There's one meaning. There's one interpretation. There might be many applications, right? As we take God's words, we seek to understand it. We apply it in different ways to our life because we're in different settings, different backgrounds. But there's one interpretation, okay? It doesn't just mean whatever we want it to mean. Um, They say, if faced with a choice between potential interpretations of a specific text, 
the one-meaning principle would suggest that multiple options, especially if mutually exclusive, cannot all be correct. So if you've come to a passage and there's two interpretations, and especially if they're, one says this and the other says this and they can't both be true, well, of course, one interpretation, this one-meaning principle, one has to be true, uh, or one, they, they can't all be true. They may, none of them may be true, right? We come to a passage and, well, I think this means this and I think this means this. Well, it doesn't mean either one of those, right? Pastor Justin. Right. No, right. Yes. Right. Right. And we're going to get into that a little bit. One of the principles, too, is that idea of progressive um, revelation as God's revealed himself. So, But thank you for pointing that out for sure, that we don't want to just say, well, now we got the New Testament, throw the Old Testament out. And there's people that do that. There's very prominent people. I could name a name, and you guys have all heard of him, that said we just got to basically do away with the... And, and he pretty much doesn't even stand on the New Testament anyway, but... Joseph? Yeah, right. Right. Right, not bound by it. Yeah, of all the Ten Commandments, all of them are repeated except about the Sabbath day. And as you read, he- yeah, and you, and you read Hebrews, and it says Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Right, that was a picture of what Christ would do. So yeah, you interpret the the old in light of the new, and God's how God's revealed. So let me give you an example real quick of this one meaning principle. And I know you know you guys haven't thought ahead. I just want to get some ideas. <clears throat> Feel free to just. And I may just throw some of these out, but here's an example. 1 Corinthians 13.10. Uh, this is the love chapter, right? And part of it says, uh, you know, signs give, basically tongues are going to cease and uh, all these gifts are going to cease. And then it says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And there's a lot of debate. What does the perfect mean, right? Um, does anyone know what some interpretations of that could be? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You have an idea? Okay, some people think that, yeah, after Jesus, they think it's Jesus' second coming, his return, okay? So when Jesus returns again, uh, that's when tongues and those kind of things will cease. And that's why there's a lot of debate is people still believe sign gifts are going on or they've ceased. And so what what is the interpretation of that that can determine uh, where you land there? So... Could be Jesus' second coming. Uh, a lot of people think it's referring to the completion of Scripture, that when the perfect comes, God's perfect uh, word that we can look to. We don't need those sign gifts. Some people say it's just the culmination of history uh, and when we're face-to-face with God in that sense. So I say that not to try to answer the question of what that means. That would be a whole probably study we'd have to do for multiple weeks. But I say that to say those can't all be correct. Paul, who wrote that, had one intent when he said, when the perfect comes. And so there's only one proper interpretation to that. We can't just all be correct. So our, our desire is to seek to understand what is that interpretation, okay? And again, the one meaning principle, like many others, has its basis in authorial intent. So what did the author intend to communicate, okay? Not just what does it mean to me today. What was he trying to communicate to the church of Corinth 
in that day and age helps us to understand uh, the interpretation, okay? I know this is a lot. We're, we're just kind of walking through this. But the next one, the exegetical principle. The meaning of any biblical text must be drawn from the text rather than be ascribed to the text. So exegesis, pulling from the text, we're not... Eisegesis is the opposite where we're putting into the text, where we're saying, you know, I think this, and now let me go find some passages that support what I say. We're saying, no, what does Scripture say? Now I'm going to base my principles on what I see in Scripture, okay? So that's simply uh, the exegetical principle. Um, They say, often readers approach the Bible with an agenda, using it to support various doctrines, whether orthodox or heretical, proof texting along the way, Others will use the Bible as a springboard for various points of interest, focusing on an aspect of the text without asking what the author was really trying to say in the original context. The exegetical principle suggests that a better way to read Scripture is to approach it on its own terms and to allow it to speak for itself. Okay? And I had a question here, and, and you guys can think about this, but what are some agendas that people could approach Scripture with that would lead to a misinterpretation? I'm going to let you chew on that because you can think of all kind of agendas people can take to scripture because um, we, we I want to keep us moving real quick okay so this is the idea again the exegetical principle what does scripture say not going to scripture with my views and then trying to find verses that support it the next one is the linguistic principle okay very straightforward and we're not going to get into detail here but the original languages of the bible always take precedent over any given translation okay so this is important god's word is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, right? Not in King James English, not in ESV English, not in French, Russian. Now we translate it, but again, we got we got to always defer to what does the orig- what do the original languages say? Okay, they say all translations will inevitably demonstrate exegetical decision making as part of the translation process. So there's times when people are translating scripture, they have to make an interpretive decision. Uh, when they come to the text, some will try to, I mean, some will try to be as vague as they can, but sometimes you come to a text and it either means this or this, and you've got to make a decision what it means in that context. And so we always have to defer not to what the original language says or what English says or our translation. We always got to defer to what does the original language say, okay? And, and uh, the book's going to address some translations more in the next chapter, okay? Uh, next, two more real quick, and then we're not going to be able to finish the back page, but we'll kick off with that next week uh the progressive principle okay this is what we talked about before later revelation may clarify complete or supersede earlier revelation okay um some examples or let me just give you one example okay uh this is the one given in the book um let's think about food loss in scripture in genesis before the fall genesis 129 it, it seems like uh mankind was were uh, vegetarians, right? Death had not happened yet, and so, of course, to eat meat, you have to kill an animal. I mean, it'd be really cruel to just cut off part of them and eat them, but uh, you usually would have to kill them, right? There'd be death, there'd be that kind of thing. So they're vegetarians. Then after the fall, they're commanded to eat animals, right, as death happens. Uh, You go to Leviticus 11, you see very specific food laws. Eat this, don't eat this. Um, Then when you come to the New Testament... Um, Jesus rescinded some of these food laws in Mark seven nineteen. Uh, Acts, he, I think Mark seven nineteen is where Jesus says it's not what comes into the body that defiles the body; it's what comes out. Uh, and then Acts ten 
9 through 16 is that vision that Peter has where the sheet is let down and here's all these unclean animals that as a Jew he was not supposed to eat and God says eat and of course that was used in an illustration to go to the Gentiles but at the same time I think this was uh, those had their place and their purpose and that time has run out and so we're not bound by those same food laws today so there's a progressive idea of later revelation either clarifies, completes, or supersedes earlier revelation, okay? Um, We shouldn't read Scripture as if it was revealed apart from the progression of history, okay? So we want to understand where it fits as God's revealed himself. The last one, very quickly, is the harmony principle, okay? And this is right in line of what we talked about. Any given portion of the Bible can have only that meaning which harmonizes with the doctrine of the Bible as a whole. There will be continuity between books of the Bible, so again, as we seek to come to a passage, we've got to interpret it in light of the whole. Okay? If there's one verse that says you know, something that we... Well, this could be a verse saying this doctrine. Well, if every other passage seems to suggest that's not the case, then we would do well to try to understand and interpret that in light of the whole. Okay? Um, and so he says, comparing Scripture with Scripture is especially useful when conducted within the same book, but given divine authorship and the resulting unity of Scripture, you should expect continuity between books of the Bible, not just within them. For this reason, you can expect to gain insight as to the parts by comparing them to the whole. And in this way, the Bible functions as its own own best commentary. Okay? Best commentary in the Bible is the Bible itself. Okay? Interpret tougher passages in light of the whole and in light of uh, easier passages. One example of this would be the outlook of 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 uh, Paul and James when it comes to works. We could go read Romans uh, chapter three, and we could say, "Man, works have no place whatsoever." And then we could go read James, and James says, "Well, you know, faith without works is dead." And we could say, "Look, these are at odds. These don't work together. Uh, scripture can't be inerrant because." Paul's saying this, and James is saying the opposite. No, as we seek to understand what they're both saying, they're looking at it from a different perspective, right? Um, They're saying the same thing, but Paul is saying, look, it's not faith plus works that equals salvation, right? Works with faith don't produce salvation. It's faith alone. But then James is saying, but look, true faith produces salvation and works, right? So if you truly have faith, faith alone, that's what's going to be evidenced by your works. So they're not saying anything in contradiction as we seek to harmonize those, we understand what both were trying to, to say. Joseph. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Paul is communicating to people who... Um, we're trusting in their works to save them. We're trusting that they had to have faith in works. And so we say, no, it's faith alone. Look at Abraham. Abraham was justified by his faith. Now that produced works, of course, and Paul acknowledges that. But then I think James is writing to people who have said, well, I got faith and now I can go live out however I want. And he says, no, true faith produces works. So they're saying the same thing, but they're looking at it from different perspectives. Okay? And so that's why we don't just say, well, I'm going to agree with Paul and and that's actually what Martin Luther did. Martin Luther, who came out of the Catholic Church, who you know, was the springboard of the Protestant Reformation, he rejected James. He said, I don't think James is Scripture, but 
we know now, no, it is Scripture, but he's a di- it's a different perspective, right? We can see the harmony between them, okay? All right, we're going to pick up with that back page next week. So if you will hold on to those, and if you can bring them back, I'll have some extras, but bring it back because I, I didn't think we'd get to that back page, but I thought I'd put it in there just in case. We'll be able to work through that pretty quickly, though, next week. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we have the, the privilege of being able to study. And God, I pray we take these principles to heart. Uh, God, it is our desire not to twist your word, uh, not to just use your word as a means to our agenda, to our means, um, but God, that we would seek to hear from you, that we would seek to understand what you've communicated with us and seek to put it into practice. So God, help us to use these principles, even this week as we study your word, to not just see your word as a bunch of hodgepodge sayings and things like the world sees it, but to see that it is truth and that it is life. Uh, It is living and active. So uh, help us to take these things to heart and bless us as we study your word and seek to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm, I'm still going to work on that. I think we might upload it like we do with the sermons, like on a po- there's a podcast we have. So I may try to do that. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I know she, I was wondering if she'd be here because I know she has a little bit of a different take, but.